Hey, everybody. I'm Jenny Stone, and you're listening to Season 7, Episode 2 of HR Rescue. If this is your first time listening, welcome. The HR Rescue podcast provides business owners, new HR professionals, and HR Department of One with solutions and guidance on some of the most common HR issues. You can find us at hr-rescue.com. Come back often and feel free to add to the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or iTunes. And all links from today's show will be in our show notes. So let's get started with today's episode. I recently came across a Big Brothers Big Sisters of America's webinar series called National Conversations, uh, Race, Relationships, and Resources. Uh, The first episode was very raw, it was real, it was very thought-provoking, and it was a candid, honest conversation about racism. And I, like many people, once thought that the answer to racism was to treat everybody as equal and not to acknowledge color at all. And in recent months, I've come to realize that this thinking is actually part of the problem and choosing not to see color at all is not the solution to racism. And it's time that we really look and take a hard look at diversity or the lack thereof in our workplaces and implement real changes in the future. And while I have many thoughts of my own on the topic, I wanted insight from Black and minority leaders who have added a great deal of value to the industry and to this topic at hand. So today's guest is Tanya Gibson. And Tanya is the, uh, she works for Big Brothers Big Sisters of America for the last four years. She currently serves as Vice President of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Human Resources for the National Office. Her role at Big Brothers Big Sisters of America is to support the National Office as a strategic business partner for human resources initiatives, as well as providing support to 230 plus Big Brothers Big Sisters agencies across the country. Tanya's role also includes leading the Big Brothers Big Sisters Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee, whose purpose is to embed DEI in all the work of Big Brothers Big Sisters. She's a champion for ensuring that all dimensions of diversity, equity, and inclusion are a priority for all staff, mentors, and the communities in which Big Brothers and Big Sisters provides mentoring services. Tanya's worked in human resources for over 10 years in a variety of industries and holds an MBA from St. Leo University, as well as a professional human resources certification from the HR Certification Institute. Welcome, Tanya. Thank you so much, Jenny. Thank you for having me and welcome to your audience. Yes, wonderful. I'm so glad to have you and and I'm very excited about uh, today's conversation. Um, When we had talked uh, initially, you said something that I found to be um, a very... um, uh, thought-provoking and very um, powerful is that um, diversity, equity, and inclusion at work needs to be a movement rather than a moment. And I found that to be really interesting. Could you kind of elaborate a little bit more on this? You said, you know, why, why are people doing this now? Why are they jumping on this DEI bandwagon? Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I I can't take full credit probably for that quote. I I attend a number of panels and and webinars and and talk with, uh, you know, HR professionals who in many cases are have found themselves having to own diversity, equity, inclusion, you know, racial injustice. What I think a lot of folks have learned is that it, it was amplified with the unfortunate and untimely murder of George Floyd in May of this year. And so a lot of, I think, companies, I think employees in the workforce were driving a lot of the discussions of, you know, look what happened to this 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 person, this human being. And I think employees were saying to their leaders, what are you as an organization going to do? Because what we're seeing in the world around us is not right. Right. And so I think a lot of, of companies, rightfully so, took a stance and 
and were making sure that, you know, people were being hurt. Humanity was at risk because we were seeing a lot of things that just were unjust and inequitable. It's it's an untenable situation, really. And so what I, I meant by that is that, you know, this is not something that's new, right? Racial injustice is, is not new just because now it's being videotaped and people are now becoming more socially conscious. Uh, this needs to be part of our everyday conversations and what you alluded to in your intro of, you know, I think a lot of people, primarily during the civil rights movement, really felt that we needed to use the, the colorblindness approach to talking about race because prior to that, um, someone that looks like me, right, a cisgender Black woman, um, would be discriminated against just by the basis of her skin color. And so those laws were put into place to make sure that we were protected and we weren't discriminated against. And that's really where the equality movement really came in. Uh, but now with diversity, equity, and inclusion, it's not about equality so much, uh, just recognizing who I am and kind of pushing me off to the side. We want to have equity, which is a different construct. And so that's why I said, it's not a moment, right? This this has been happening for, you know, 400 plus years, frankly. And it's it's time now, I think, for all of us as human beings to take onus in our part that we play in, you know, the destruction and the dismantling of systems of oppression for all people, not just based off of race, but gender equality needs to be something that we talk about. Um, you know, for folks who are disabled, the, you know, people with disabilities, we need to take onus of, you know, someone like myself who's not disabled and the privilege that I have to be able to do things that uh, other individuals can't do, right? So it is a movement to provide equity for for anything that's unjust, unfair, and unbalanced. And so that's really what um, you know I meant by that statement, that we shouldn't just take this moment in time and forget about the injustices that happen to individuals, right? We're coming upon in a couple of days here, the uh, Indigenous Peoples Day, um, and you know the Native community is suffering from COVID-19. Um, you know, there are so many things that happen in our world that if you are not a part of that community, you may not otherwise see what's happening around you. And that's why I think it's so important for folks like you and I and our other HR professionals to be mindful of the fact that we can't own everything. And so if we're not an expert in diversity, equity, and inclusion, you should find someone who is, um, have meaningful, open conversations, and recognize that, to your point, being colorblind may have worked in the 60s and 70s because that was the framework in which we were making that movement um, because we found that people weren't ignoring uh, skin color and discriminating and harassing individuals who were from a marginalized community. But I think we've now gotten to a place where there was some movement and now we need to really uh, take hold of that and build real inclusion, build real equity so that it's fair and, ju and just for all um, whether they represent the, you know, right now the majority or if they represent a marginalized community, we should all be looking at humanity and making sure that that's what's most important in in the here and now um, and hopefully the future. Wonderful. So I, I know that one of the key parts of uh, leading is to lead and to ask tough questions um, because either actions or inactions um, are there for everybody to see. So uh, what are some examples uh, of this that you that you can, from a leadership perspective, when it comes to the diversity and, and equity and inclusion? Yeah, I think someone who, you know, may be new in this journey, I think, you know, first action would be to 
take take a, an introspective look at who you are and some of those biases, right? We call that implicit bias or unconscious bias for my HR professionals. And we've been doing that for years, right? That's that typical compliance training that we do once a year. But I'd say take it a step further. Um, there's a really great free uh, test out there that you can all take. It's called the Harvard Implicit Bias Test. And that would be where I would start. I think every HR professional should know where, where our biases lie so that we can make sure that we are, are trying to mitigate those and remove those as a barrier to our work. Um, I'd say another action that anyone could take uh, once you have learned a little bit about your own biases is, of course, share that with others so that they can also um, learn what their biases are and where their blind spots are. Um, but true action beyond introspection is then that self-awareness and being able to impart that knowledge on others. I think so often in HR, we have to own everything and we, we feel a sense of ownership to make sure that, um, you know, we're the teachers versus the learners. And so once we start to take that action internally, we then need to share that externally with our leaders within the organization, our first line managers, our leadership you know, your board, your shareholders, whomever your constituents are, um, you know, your customers. So that that would be step one. And then I would say some other actions that can be taken is start to look at your circle of influence, right? Who are you interacting with? Who do you follow on social media? Who are you listening to? Where do you find um, your, your information? Um, and make sure that those sources are diverse, Right. If, if the only people that I follow are people that look like me, that came from the same you know, educational background, socioeconomic status, um, you know, my worldview is, is very closed. And I, as an individual, find myself having to learn from others, um, find out where other people's value systems lie. And one thing that I think is very important in this work when you're taking action is to listen. Uh, we don't always think of listening as an action, but I think that would be my recommendation to anyone who's trying to learn more and become more inclusive is listen. Um, we've, uh, Frankly, we've been hearing about a lot of these injustices, not only in the workforce, but in the world for years. And I think that is so important for us to really listen and hear from others. Uh, just because it didn't happen to you or you didn't know or it wasn't a part of your worldview doesn't mean that it doesn't have value and that it isn't it is not factual. Um, so I think listening would be another action that I would tell anyone who's trying to get into this work or just become um, you know more holistic in in their worldview. Listen to others, follow those um, in different spheres of influence. I always recommend for people who, who say to me, you know, what can I do, Tanya? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a white person. I want to become an ally. I would say, you know, find those social media influencers in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space and start listening to what they have to say. Find some of those books. Listen to podcasts like this um, when you have these DEI thought leaders um, and and. Try and educate yourself, unlearn some of those uh, behaviors uh, and history that, frankly, didn't always capture all sides of a view, uh, because I think that then provides you with a lot more insight into what's happening in other people's lives. So how so would you speak to the fear? So I, I, when I say that, I mean, sometimes there's just a, a for, for me, like a general discomfort that I have no business talking about uh, race and having those conversations when you say to reach out how do you how do you get past that and how do you how do you do that yeah you know I think you have to again to my point you have to think of it from the other side right so if if you have a fear or discomfort you have to ask yourself 
why is that? Why do you have a fear of talking about something that we all have to own, right? Mm -hmm. I can't have a fear of talking about my race because I have to live in the skin that I'm in and vice versa. And so I think it's it's moving past that fear. Why are we so fearful and, and uncomfortable having these conversations? So that would be the first step is ask yourself that question. What is it about talking about race that makes you uncomfortable? And then go seek the, out those thought leaders who can get you over that hump. Um, I listened to a great uh, TEDx talk by Melody Hobson, and her TED talk is, I can't remember the exact title, but um, it's talking about colorblindness. And I believe it's uh, to be colorblind or to be color brave. And I think that's very important when we talk about that fear. What is it about fear that makes us uncomfortable? Is it because we have a sense of concern that we're going to say the wrong thing? And if that's the case, then I would say you have to move past that because in this work, there are almost certainly going to be times where things are uncomfortable um, and you may feel that you're going to say the wrong thing. As long as you are someone who understands that you're going to make those oops or ouch moments and recognize that, validate it, acknowledge it and make those corrections, then you can always move forward. Um, I learned a lot from one of my peers in our office, Hillary Bardwell, who heads up our LGBTQ work. And she reminds me all the time that, you know, there are mistakes are going to happen. Um, I, for example, sometimes may use the wrong pronoun for someone and in the LGBTQ community, that's very important. Um, and so as you saw in my uh, introduction, right, my title, I, I always try and make sure my pronouns, she, her and hers are acknowledged, because that then provides a sense of comfort to someone in the LGBTQ community, that they know how to address me and I know how to address them. And so it's the same when we talk about anything with diversity, equity and inclusion or race equity work. Um, you have to get beyond that fear um, because it, it is, it's a part of, of the, light, the world that we live in. And if we ignore it, that then doesn't validate my race. It, it tells me that the person that I'm speaking to or who wants to talk to me is ignoring a part of my identity. It's just the same if I don't identify someone's pronouns or I don't identify the fact that I have privilege living in a first world country. I've privileged that I have the ability to speak English and that you know my education and my socioeconomic status may be some one that someone else doesn't have the advantage and the, the ability to have those uh, additional privileges. And so it's the same with race equity work. Acknowledge that someone has their identity, um, validate when you make a mistake, and then try to learn from that. Um, there's there's so many different resources now in this work. Um, so you can't, there, there shouldn't be anyone that says, you know, I don't know where to go to be able to get the information to move yourself forward and grow in this work. Okay, wonderful. Um, it shouldn't be surprising, I guess, that a lot of diversity programs aren't really increasing diversity. Um, they Sometimes they have a few new bells and whistles, but basically they're using the same approaches that they've been using since the 1960s. So sometimes, well, I think most often it makes things worse, not better. So when we talk about um, the tools are really designed to preempt lawsuits, right? So to make sure that we're policing managers and their thoughts and actions, but studies have actually shown that it's kind of force feeding and it activates the bias and of stamping it out. So do you think that people who undergo training usually shed their biases? Or what are, what are your thoughts about kind of what these DEI programs look like um, and how we can, uh, you know, Im improve them or make them so that it is actual uh, training and learning as opposed to just checking off a box? 
Yeah, you know, I, I definitely agree with what you said. You know, the studies do show that that the training um, as it is today is not effective. And I think it's it's back to the point of who's creating those trainings? What were what was the intention behind the training? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what we're learning now. I don't even like to call what we do at Big Brothers Big Sisters training because it's awareness. It's ongoing and it will go on forever. We call it our evergreen training because this work is not going to end. We need to always be learning and provide growth. Uh, so I absolutely agree that the training as it is today is not effective and it, it does not decrease biases. And in some instances, it actually does make it worse. There are studies out there that show the training that we do right now, um, you know, the annual compliance training, in many instances, it can be offensive. It creates barriers to discussion um, and just was not created for the intention of providing open, honest discussion and equity. And that's why equity has become a term that I, I like to emphasize in these conversations, because it's not about just you know recognizing everyone's differences, which is just the first step, which is diversity. It's really going beyond that. It's it's telling someone that who they are and where their identity lies and all the different identities, not just race, but all of the different identities that make up a, a human being have have value and should be respected and acknowledged. And that individual, those individuals should all have a, a part of the process and provide their insight. And that's how you groom a true awareness training uh, or educational uh, curriculum. And then from there, um, those trainings or education curriculum should be such that those who are involved in in the work themselves should build that curriculum and that language. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of that training was, as you said, to preempt litigation. So it's very legal. Um, It doesn't provide a lot of insight from marginalized community members and thought leaders. And so overall, you know, I, we're revamping our training right now. and, And I always look at it from the sense of, who are all the stakeholders involved? Who are the folks who are going to get this training? Were they involved in creating the training, providing the feedback, providing the feedback, giving insights to what's working? Um, and I think all um, stakeholders should be involved. And so I always emphasize in our committee conversations, are we talking to all of the uh, important stakeholders, meaning not just our marginalized community members. We also want to have, you know, our white allies or what we call co-conspirators or accomplices, the folks who are passionate about this work, um, who may identify as white and who also want to provide their insights to make sure that it is meaningful for all, all parties involved. And so hopefully that answered your question, Jenny, of, of what I think about some of the training that we currently provide. Right. And because and, I think that a lot of organizations struggle with it because it's, it's you know, yes, uh, there's awareness building, but there's no targeted action. You know, there's new expectations, but your leadership is not engaged or uh, you're focusing on individual uh, responsibility, but there's no organizational change. So I think that's where it, it lacks a lot. So um, great insight. So just to, to kind of build on uh, kind of as my, my final question for you. So we talked about um, that sometimes just handing off this type of uh, work to um, the HR manager or the HR department of one or the uh, whoever it may be within the organization may not be the right choice. So how would you suggest for a small company, so like a lot of my listeners, a small organization with limited resources, and maybe, you know, this the HR manager or the HR department of one has been tasked with the DEI initiative, where, where do they start? I know you mentioned a couple of, of great tools and there's a lot of things out there. What would you suggest to uh, to those folks? 
Yeah, I would say, and this is the time for HR to shine. I think COVID uh, illuminated how important an HR practitioner is. Um, and so I think I would ask some pre-work questions. Why is it that HR was given this responsibility? Like anything else, is this person an expert in DEI or was it just as we sometimes experience in HR, it's no one else wants to do that particular task and so we'll give it to our HR person. And I think if it's the latter, that's the wrong approach, right? Because just because I may be in human resources does not mean I'm an expert in this particular work. Uh, this work is tough, uh, it's challenging, and we've already piled on a lot onto our HR practitioners right now with COVID-19 and a lot of the workforce um, issues and challenges that we have. So if if we're looking at our HR practitioners who quote unquote solve a problem or we if we approach this DEI work as a problem to solve, it actually will do nothing. It will, it will create more harm. Um, and so that would be one, one thing in terms of, of having that conversation with leadership ask some questions. Why is it that the HR practitioner is being tasked with this responsibility? Is it truly because I'm an expert or because no one else in the organization is? And if that's the case, I would not have the HR practitioner do this work. I would reach out to a true D&I uh, consulting firm. And I, I know the next uh, you know answer from your audience is probably, well, we don't have the funds. And I, I completely understand that. I work for a nonprofit. Uh, this was something we had to budget for as well. But if you're truly wanting to make and drive true change to your point, um, you know, there's no action typically behind this work. It's just, well, you know, we're checking a box. If, if any of those things are a part of, of the reason why, I would just say, you know, don't do it. Go find a DNI uh, consulting firm to help you because you're not going to actually make any change and it will actually hurt and harm your business. Um, what I, I share with a lot of audiences when we talk about this particular part of our work is if you're not really here to make a change, then you should not say that you are. Um, we're in cancel culture every day of the week in this work. Um, the workforce of the future is demanding action. And so, you know, kudos to all those companies who want to make the change um, and who know they don't right now have the budget. But you have to look at your line item budget and be very honest with yourself. If you're going to say that you want to do this work, then you have to invest in this work. You have to have the resources, just like we do for any other uh, operating operational budget line item. If you have money for marketing, if you have money for, you know, any benefits or perks, if you have money for your finance department, you know, you have to set this aside as if it's any other department and, and fund it appropriately. Um, you can't ask an HR practitioner to learn something that is totally new and expect true change to happen. Um, but that being said, if you do have an HR practitioner that has passion in this work and does want to own this as the leader, um, I want to remind those practitioners that it's not just a one-person job, right? Especially if you're already a department of one, you already know, you have a lot of things going on. And so you have to find the resources within the organization. Now I'm talking about your human capital resources that can assist you with the work. Um, everyone needs to own it and it needs to be from the top. If leadership puts the onus on an HR practitioner and they are not also leading the charge alongside the HR practitioner, the work will fall flat. It will seem what we call performative. And that's the last thing you want in an organization to have DNI work that is performative, that's just there as a facade to say that we did something and then move on to the next trend whenever that appears. All of those things are, are 
definitely no-nos in this work. Um, and your customers, your clients, and definitely your workforce, they're going to call you out on it. Because what we see now with the trends of, you know, the millennial generation that's in the workforce, Gen Z, and the generation right behind Gen Z, that workforce demands action. Um, they demand accountability. And so again, just having your HR practitioner own it is not the answer. And it's even for us, even though my title is VP of DEI and I am the leader um, and I create a lot of the strategic path to move forward, I'm working alongside my CEO and president when we do things, when we create curriculum. I have a two different committees that assist me and provide feedback and insight. And my entire senior leadership team and our board is all on board with this. And we make sure that we're very clear on our messaging and what our intent is and what our actions are going to be. And our staff holds us accountable if we don't attain those items that we've listed out for them that we want to achieve. And that's the same that it should be no matter the size of your organization, if it's, you know, two people or 200,000 people. Right. right. You can't, can't go it alone. That's right. That's right. Okay, wonderful. And I, I really appreciate your time today, Tanya. This has been great. I'm sure we could talk for quite a long time about this. But yeah. for everyone who's listening, where can they find you and connect? Yeah, so you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, my LinkedIn, you can definitely reach out to me there and just make sure you put a note that you listened to this podcast so I, I can make sure I, I send you a note back. Um, you can also reach out to me through our Big Brothers Big Sisters website. Um, so I'm available there on www.bbbs.org. Uh, so those are really the two ways that you can reach out to me and connect and interact. Okay, awesome. And I also want to let everybody know, um, be sure to join Tanya and Big Brothers Big Sisters of America on October 14th for our Allyship to Impact. It's a conversation with diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging leader, Jared Carroll, as he guides conversation on power, privilege, and whiteness. You can find the registration info here on the screen, but you also can find it in our show notes. And we really hope that everyone enjoyed today's podcast. And just a reminder to please subscribe so you never miss an episode of H our rescue. Uh, thank you again, Tanya, for being here. I appreciate it very much. This is a wonderful conversation. Uh, and as a reminder to our audience, the opinions expressed in this program do not represent legal advice, nor should they necessarily be taken as the views of a or its employees. Thank you, Tanya. And uh, we'll be talking again soon. You have a wonderful day. Yes, thank you.